live from the JLE in London. Join us for 20 minutes weekly with Rabbi Dr. Akiva Tetz, hosted by myself, Mena Reisner, as we delve into the hottest topics of the 21st century. From the origins of the universe, vaccine conspiracies, genetics and Jewish law, relationships and everything in between, you are listening to Conversations with Rabbi Tatz. Welcome back, Rabbi Tatz. Thank you very much for joining us again. The series of individuality was a very big hit. We've been receiving a lot of positive feedback, Baruch Hashem. And thank you for taking out of your valuable time to join us. Today we're going to be speaking about genetics. Genetics is a huge uh, subject. It's going to be a three, possibly four-part series. There's a lot of hype about genetics today. You see it the whole time in the papers, in the media, genetics manipulation. People are manipulating genetics from tomatoes all the way to human beings. Designer babies. There's so much stuff on the news. So I'm wondering if you could give us a bit of background on the Jewish perspective and genetics in general. Thank you. Sure, with pleasure. That was a great introduction, Arab Manor. Let's talk a little bit about some of the genetic issues. With your permission, what I'll start with is screening for young people contemplating marriage, because I think that's the most important. After that, we'll try to talk a little bit about identifying people using DNA, court cases, forensics, dead bodies, etc. There's an amazing new discovery, which is a unique Jewish gene. There's a Kahanim gene. So this is a really brave new field. And then Eventually, we can also talk a little bit about um, avoiding genetic problems in families who are known to have genetic problems. But let's begin with the question of genetic screening. And the main thing I'd I'd like people to understand from this discussion is why it is so important to be screened if you're contemplating marriage, particularly young people setting out with a view to marriage. Very important to take the opportunity to be screened to avoid the tragedy of children being born with disastrous and painful and very, very distressing genetic diseases. Let me give you the background. Let me say a few words of background, and then we'll lead into the practicalities of screening and why it's important. The background is that the Jewish community has some unique genetic diseases. When I say Jewish community, I'm thinking more of the Ashkenazi community. The Sephardi community has its own, I would say, more or less unique issues, and we, we should talk about that as well. But the classic example that we relate to today is the Ashkenazi community. We in the Ashkenazi community have a number of genetic diseases which are much more common than in the world around us. Some are well known, like the BRCA gene, which is a breast cancer gene, which happens to be common among Jewish women. But there are also a number that are causing disastrous illness in babies and young children, and many of them actually not only distressing, disastrous and painful, but also lethal such as Tay-Sachs, for example, familial dysautonomia, Gaucher's disease, uh, cystic fibrosis. Not that only Jews have these diseases, but we have a much higher incidence of these. And I would say there's probably eight or nine of these diseases at a more expanded level, probably 18, 19, 20 diseases that are much more common in the Jewish community. First of all, why are they more common among Ashkenazi Jews? Let's begin with that. And this is probably due to what's known as a bottleneck effect. The theory is that uh, since there, were, there was a time when there were very few Ashkenazi Jews, if you go back to the mid-1600s, as um, I'm sure Rabbi Hirsch has probably had occasion to talk about, and I'm sure he will, during the time of the terrible pogroms in Europe, for various reasons, including those, those brutal pogroms, there were probably less than 2 million Jews in Europe, 2 million Ashkenazi Jews. Now, that's a very small population. And when you have a small population that may have a recessive genetic fault and later perhaps we can talk about the difference between recessive and dominant genes if you have a very small community 
and there's a recessive gene in the community, since it is likely that cousins will marry each other in a small community, you'll get an amplification of that gene. And a recessive gene means that if two cousins who have the same gene marry each other, then a certain proportion of their children will have the disease, which is manifest only when two people with the same gene marry each other. And this is known as a bottleneck, uh, the small numbers. And then you have what the result of that is known as a founder effect. You have a founder, someone long ago in a community who had a defective or problematic gene, and then that gene is amplified in the community. I'll give you an example from my own personal medical background. As you know, I'm a doctor and I, I was trained in medicine in South Africa. In South Africa, there's a very well-known phenomenon that if a doctor in South Africa gets a patient who's usually a young adult with absolutely terrible abdominal pains, no blood tests abnormal, very weird syndrome, you test, you do all sorts of scans and tests, you find nothing wrong. Then you notice that they happen to be sun sensitive. And then you may or may not notice that the urine is dark and may be brown, it may be purple. Now, if you put that constellation of findings to a doctor in England or America, they'll scratch their heads and think, what could that be? But South African doctors will diagnose a disease called porphyria instantaneously. Why? Because in South Africa, there's a lot of Dutch people who have porphyria. Why? Because in the 1600s in the Cape Colony, where there were very few, just a few dozen residents, there was a Dutch settler who had the gene. And in such a small community, obviously, the gene spread by intermarriage in the community. And that was a founder effect. And today it happens to be a disease that is very prevalent in that particular population group in South Africa. So it's all traced to one lone Dutchman? Probably went back to one individual who probably had descendants who married each other. That's the theory. And that is known as your bottleneck with your founder effect. Now, we have a similar thing in the Jewish community, and the carrier rate is quite high. For example, Tay-Sachs disease, the carrier rate in Ashkenazi Jews today is more than 1 in 30. Now, more than 1 in 30 is a high number. If you take a random sampling of an Ashkenazi community, the chance that someone will marry someone else randomly will be 1 in 30 times 1 in 30, 1 in 900. And since it's a recessive gene, 1 in 4 of their children will be born with the disease. One will be normal. Two will be born as carriers, which doesn't really affect them. And one out of four will be born with the disease, which is one in 3,200, which means that there'll be lots of children every year born with this problem. In my own class at medical school in South Africa, there were 210 students, 120 of whom were Jewish. Can you imagine? Non-Jewish country. We've formed a tiny percentage of the population, but more than half the medical school class was Jewish. And we did a research survey in our class, and of the 120 Jews in the class, two turned out to be carriers of Tay-Sachs, which is more or less what you'd expect. And Tay-Sachs, of course, a disastrous disease. The children are born fine, but after a few months, they start disintegrating neurologically, and they die in pain, and very, very painful and brutal course, and the children usually die at the age of two or three. And as I say, very common in the Ashkenazi community. And the others are, some of them, almost as common as that, and some a little bit less, but we carry these genes. Now, what can be done? What can be done? One set of problems exists when you have a couple who already know they have the gene. They've had a child, for example. And that will take us down one route of thinking, what do you do for a couple? And of course, I've dealt with many people like this. When they have an ONG and they've had a child tragically affected, they're very anxious not to have another child born with the same problem. But before we get to that, let's talk about prevention in the first place. After all, if you could find out which genes you have, you could make sure that you don't marry someone with the same gene. Now, in the Orthodox Jewish world, this works very well, because if people are screened and you know 
that you have a recessive gene before you even meet a prospective match. Let's say your parents suggest that you meet someone or friends suggest there's no emotional relationship. You never met the person. But the first thing you do before you meet is simply exchange genetic information. If you both carry the same recessive gene, you simply don't meet. There's no problem. There's no uh, enmeshed relationship which has got going. Of course, if you meet in the secular world, where people meet late on Saturday night in a psychedelic haze, you know, in an establishment of dubious provenance, then, of course, things might be a little different. But in the orthodox world where marriages are more or less by design, shall we say, it works very well. So what we have here is the possibility of screening, which means that we encourage our young people to be screened before they enter the marriage age. And so we know that we are introducing a young man to a young woman where there's been a screening that neither of them carries any abnormal gene or they don't carry the same abnormal gene. Of course, if they're both carriers for two different things, there will be no problem. The only problem will be they will have children who are carriers, but we can do the same testing in the next generation. And that has led to the field of screening. So far, so good? Crystal Crystal clear. Let me tell you about a couple of the methods of screening, and I'd like our listeners to be extremely clear about this because this is very practically important. And I think it's, a, it's tragic to not avail yourself of these opportunities, which are very, very cheap and easy to do and very popular and acceptable in the, in the Jewish community today. We are speaking from London. London has genetics and one or two other opportunities. South Africa has its own two Jewish genetic screening methods. New York has its own. So there are plenty of opportunities. Genetics in London often runs free screening programs. So no reason why a young Jew should not be screened. I think some of our listeners will be familiar with Doris Sharm. I will talk about Dori Shorim first and then move on to others. Rabbi Eckstein and his wife, a couple living in New York, lost four or five babies to Tay-Sachs. Can you imagine the tragedy of having four or five children die of Tay-Sachs disease? The Ecksteins decided that they would do something about it and start a screening program to prevent other people from having the same thing. Well, what can you do to prevent meeting someone else? One highly recommended thing you can do is marry a Sephardi. I very highly recommend Doing that, you'll be mixing two populations with two different sets of genetic issues, very highly recommended. Of course, it'd have to be a purebred Ashkenazi and a purebred Sephardi. That's one thing you can do. But a much better and more thorough way of doing this is screening. So the Exteens began a program known as Dor Yashorim. Dor Yashorim. And they decided to start a program which has been running for many years now. And we've sent many people through that program. Many, many tens of thousands of people have been screened. And thousands, hundreds, thousands of people have been advised not to marry because they've discovered that they have the same gene. Now, Dori Shorim decided to screen in an anonymous way. Very interesting. And the way they do it is this. You send a blood sample. They're often collected in schools, in high schools, Besiakov and Yeshivas. The cost is about, I think, present time it's about $200 more or less and within a couple of weeks you send off the blood sample to New York every town around the world with a sizable Jewish population has people who will take the blood for you London has a wonderful lady who's a nurse she, she does it for you and the samples are sent off the testing is done in New York and you are not told your result they keep your result secret and they simply keep it on file you can opt for a normal panel, which I think today has about 10 or 11 diseases they look for, or an expanded panel, which has about 18 or 19. Uh, you can choose that as well. You can also ask for a Sfardi panel, in which they'll look for the diseases that are more prevalent in the Sfardi panel. And why do they keep it secret? I'll explain that right now. So what they do is, no one is told what the results are, not even you. And the reason is because they're afraid that people will be stigmatized when people know you're a carrier. In other words, I tell you that you're a carrier of, of Tay-Sachs disease. People 
uneducated people might not want to marry you, feeling you have some problem. You don't have a problem. If you carry a gene for Tay-Sachs, you are fine. The worst that can possibly happen is half your children will be carriers like you. But um, they thought that people knowing they have a gene might feel bad and people might not want to marry people who have a defective gene, thinking that there's something wrong with them. So to spare people from that undeserved stigma, they keep the results a secret. And what happens is when a young man plans to marry a young woman or meet her, you simply exchange your birth dates and your code number. That's all. So let's say I'm a young man contemplating marrying Miss X. Miss X will give me her birth date and her code number, and I will give her mine. I will then call the office in New York. There's security checks as you go on the phone. And then you simply give your birth date and number and hers. And they simply tell you compatible or not compatible. If they tell you compatible, of course, it means either neither of you has any issue or one of you does, but the other one doesn't, or you both have two different genetic recessive diseases, which are the genes, which means you'll be fine. I still have my Doris Sharm number written at the back of my passport. My wife saw it recently and she asked me why, why I haven't tipexed it out. <laughs> okay, so that is the way that they do it. If, however, you are told that you're incompatible, then you know that both you and your prospective mate carry the same recessive gene. They only test for recessive genes. Dominant gene means that it's irrespective of whom you marry, you have a 50% chance of your children having the disease that you carry, and there's no point preventing a marriage with anybody in particular because it doesn't matter whom you marry. And that will take us to a separate discussion. So they're only checking for recessive diseases. If they tell you incompatible, then of course you're free to pursue your own testing and go and find out what particular gene you have if you want to. But at least you are warned not to marry. And if you very much want to marry this person, the two of you can then go and do external testing. I think Joshua actually offer a signed program where you can then progress to open testing once you know you're incompatible. Pretty easy to do in many genetic labs today. And then you and the young lady will know what you have. Most people will choose simply not to marry that person. Some will choose to marry them and take preventive action so that they will not have children with that disease. And that brings us to another discussion called PGD, which Imi Tzashem in a future session will cover. So the first screening, again, to summarize, Dori Sharim, an anonymous program, and you are simply given the go-ahead if you are told. If you're told you're compatible, you know that you do not share with your prospective partner the same abnormal gene, at least not one of the more common ones. There are very rare diseases that you may in fact share. The statistical probability of meeting somebody like that is extremely small. They're not testing for those. That's their decision and that's how they do it. Now, most rabbis around the world, including Rav Moshe Feinstein at the time, were very much in favor of this program and it became extremely popular and it is done throughout certainly the Orthodox world and the broader Jewish world. There are one or two rabbis, I don't want to name them, but there are one or two rabbis who feel this is hocus-pocus, uh, anonymous stuff, which is totally unnecessary, and we ought to do an alternative. And let me tell you the alternative. The alternative is open testing. Rather than go for this anonymous thing where you don't know and it's all kept secret, simply have yourself tested. And you can do that when you're 12 years old before you meet anyone else. Simply go to a genetic lab, and there are many of them, and have yourself tested. You can do a Jewish panel. You can do a panel of 400 abnormal genes. You can even do whole genome so sequencing in which they'll look at all your genes. That will give you a result where you know that you have a disease gene. Of course, you'll discover dominant genes as well. You'll discover BRCA genes, which are not disease genes, but give a predisposition to disease when you're an older person, etc., etc. The foremost interest in this field, of course, is doing a panel of open tests similar to what Doi Shoyun do, so that you discover you're a carrier. What you then do is when you're 
propose to meet someone else of the opposite sex but you're to marriage you simply inform them that you have this and you ask them to do open testing as well you then cannot go to Dorisharim Dorisharim will not test people who have already been tested openly it's only an anonymous closed system but then you simply do open testing of course it means disclosing to the partner that you do have a recessive gene and that partner will then be tested and of course if you then turn out not to have the same disease you also know quite openly what you have in my experience over the last 10 years or so, there's been a strong movement in the Orthodox world, particularly in the, shall we call it, the less extreme right-wing world, to test more openly. The feeling today is that people are better educated, better informed. Much more people know today that if you carry a recessive gene, it's not an issue. And the sphere of being stigmatized and so forth and so on, I think has got less. And so programs have sprung up today where rather than doing anonymous testing, you simply do a panel of 18 or 19 open tests and you get a certificate and you know you know what you have where's the push for this coming from what was what was wrong with the anonymous system good question i don't think there was a push for this i think simply that as social acceptance of having yourself screened people are sending their genes today to know who their relatives are and how many percentage you know uh, ashkenazi blood they have and so on become a trend it's become a trend. And so I think as things opened up and people are more comfortable, particularly in the more modern side of the Orthodox world, I think it just became a much more acceptable trend. Plenty of people still do the Doroshorim. My own children have done that. And my, some of my children have done open testing as well. So I think it's not pushed, but I think it's become a lot more acceptable. I'm personally in favor of either one. I think they're both wonderful. I have no problem with the open testing. Being a doctor, I don't feel any you know problem or, or stigma with that. So that is what's done today. I would issue a caution, if I may, and that is that if one's considering doing a very broad panel of open testing, one ought to be a little cautious, by which I mean this. If you do the testing for the, let's call it the 20 most common, the Ashkenazi ants for any disease, that's fine. But if you do a broader test, for example, there's a professor in London whom I've worked with on a couple of occasions here, a non-Jewish professor who's very, very well regarded, he advises young people to do a test that he likes, which tests for 400 genetic problems. Now, he's not dealing with Jews in particular. He's dealing with a broad population. And of course, he wants to cover the Sikhs and the, the Muslim community and people from all ethnic backgrounds. And so he recommends a panel, which of course covers all the well-known Jewish diseases as well, but it's broader than that. And so you can do that panel. And of course, most will not be relevant to Orthodox Jews, but you, you'll find what you have. And I'm totally okay with that. What I'm a little hesitant about is whole genome sequencing. Today, the price of having your whole genome sequenced is not uh, astronomical at all. And so people sometimes, when there's a doubtful problem in a family, a child born that doesn't look quite normal, you want to know if there's a genetic issue, you don't exactly know what gene you're looking for. So then people are doing whole genome sequencing. And I'd like to issue a caution about that. That is when, when there's reason to do it, absolutely. Yes, I know with this professor whom I've worked with before, Professor Sagar, we've done whole genome sequencing where it's been indicated and that's been fine. But if a person with no reason decides to do screening with whole genome sequencing, the problem is you almost always find something. And then, of course, to you get have this, your money's worth. Well, yes. And of <laughs> course, you're dealing with an abnormal gene. No one knows exactly what it does. It's incidentally found. The, the, in medicine, we like to call those things incidentalomas. You know, the disease is an incidentaloma, something you had a scan for something and something else was seen. Of course, probably is irrelevant, but now everyone starts worrying about that thing. So I would be a little hesitant about doing whole genome screening. 
I wouldn't say it's wrong, but just to be aware that you'll probably end up with some unnecessary doubts. And while I'm on that subject, let me talk about just briefly, people are sending in their DNA now for ancestry and broad. I think it's a lot of fun to do. I would caution people that there's some very important downsides to that. Um, on the one hand, they give you this cool information, you're 98% Ashkenazi Jewish and you've got 2%, you know, Italian and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, which is completely relevant, halakhically relevant and sociologically relevant, but people think it's cool. But more important is they say, do you want to know who your cousins are? If you say yes, and these other cousins around the world who have also done these testing also get permission, they will give you a list of 20 people you've never heard of who may be your cousins. The problem with that, of course, if things go well, you may discover unknown relatives and it can be a lot of fun, it can be wonderful, but you may also discover very distressing information. There have been families who discovered that the husband was not the father of the children. Okay, now that is disastrous. There's a woman who had an illicit relationship in a marriage, no one knows except her, and then the genetic testing turns out to be, uh, a, woman, a Jewish woman wrote a book recently, um, she'd been conceived by insemination, she knew that, she knew that, but of course, she didn't know who the father was who donated the sperm. And she went looking on public databases and found her father and actually knocked on his door. It took her three days, that's all. And he turned out to be, he looks exactly like her, same color eyes. He's got the same taste in literature. They like the same music. I mean, quite uncanny. He's a doctor and he donated many sperm samples to many people. Now, that's not disastrous, just can be quite a you know destabilizing emotional situation, but it can be much more significant than that. You probably heard last year the police in California arrested a serial killer from the 1980s. How did they find him? Well, they had DNA samples from the murdered victims, but they never found a match. Nowadays, since so many people, hundreds of thousands of people around the world, are doing testing, here's what they did. The murderer had never allowed a sample to be taken from him, obviously, so there were no data on record of his DNA. But as it happens, many of his cousins had done random DNA sampling. And so what the police in California did was they matched the samples that they'd found in their victims on their victims' bodies and clothing, they matched the samples with a family in California. And the family was very clearly one family. And then they put two and two together genetically, and all the fingers in the family pointed at one individual who must have been the individual by deduction genetically, even though he'd never given a sample. And he was convicted only a few months ago of serial murders in the 1980s, even though he never gave a sample. So what I'm saying to you is... It's good news for the police, the future. Absolutely. But if people are unwittingly... Now, I'm not here to defend serial murders from the 1980s. <laughs> you know, Rabbi Reisner, about one in six children born today are born from insemination or IVF techniques, not always, of course, from a donor very often. But about one in six, about 15, 16% of married couples still have difficulty conceiving. And so some or other IVF procedures used. Dan Erentroy, you should be well, told me some time ago, he's concerned that of the young Jewish couples coming forward to get married today, unknown to you, a number of them are stories in which the parents are not the parents. There have been egg donations and surrogacy and sperm donations. Sometimes the parents don't think to mention and sometimes they don't want to mention. And as you can well imagine, there's a possibility that somebody may be marrying their sister. So these are, these are issues to think about in broader screening. Anyway, let's make a quick summary of what we've said so far. And that is that today young couples are strongly urged to screen before they marry. If you're marrying someone from across the let's call it intermarriage, as far as marrying an Ashkenazi, that raises less problems and is partially a solution. If you're marrying somebody with a similar genetic background to yourself, there is a very significant possibility that you'll marry someone who has a very, very unpleasant 
combination of genetics, same as yours. And today, the screening can be extremely effective and prevent such marriages. One way to do it is anonymous. That's the Dory Sharon program. Extremely successful, highly recommended. The other is simply open testing. And then you simply require that the person you meet also does the open testing. We haven't had a case of Tay-Sachs in the community for a long time now, thank God, because these screenings have been so, so effective. But the system must be used well. Let me finish with this, and then we can talk about other genetic issues. Let me finish with this. When the system is misused, it causes problems. Dory Sharon will not test anyone who's been tested before and knows what they have. There was a certain city in Europe. I, w- I won't embarrass the residents of that city by mentioning where it was. This goes back about five years. Dori Shorim suddenly were getting a spike in abnormal genes in that city, which was terrible. In other words, instead of, you know, one in 900 couples turning out to have Tay-Sachs, they had a much higher number than that. There were a couple of genetic diseases, and they were seeing a spike, and they were really getting concerned. Something in the drinking water, you know, is there radiation? What's going on in that city? Turned out that there were a number of families in that city <clears throat> who knew that they had a genetic problem and not willing to tell anyone. They were simply sending their children through the Dori Shorin program knowing that they had a problem. And since it was largely skewed towards families who knew they had an issue and they had been saying, of course many of them would turn out to be incompatible. When they found out about it, of course, they simply made it clear we're not. And so people using the system correctly are only using it when there's no other information and you don't know you have an issue, and it works very well. So let me end this session by giving my very strong recommendation that young people contemplating marriage, I say young, could be anybody, of course, but people of childbearing age, should very seriously consider genetic screening. In South Africa, the genetic counselor is Kara Stoller, wonderful young lady. You can speak to her. Here, Genetics has a wonderful program in London. Or in New York, you can go directly to one of the, the screening systems. So convenient, so cheap. You can even get schools to, to much lower rates when they do group screening and so on. Very highly recommended. And theoretically, we could even possibly almost eliminate, if not the genes, but certainly the diseases. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Robert Ants. That was fascinating and also very helpful and informative. We'll see you next week. You're going to be speaking further about genetics. I believe you're going to be speaking about how to identify. Well, let's talk next week about what happens when a family already does have a known genetic problem and they're married already. What can they do at that stage? Okay. Thank you very much. Looking forward. All the best, Robert Ants. Thank you.